For the first time in quite a few years, the weight of NBC is a very present threat. And we find ourselves bracing for what's coming. In hindsight, I think I'd already started bracing for the news we got last week. Early last week, I had a PET CT, which I get roughly quarterly, and the results demonstrated that the cancer has spread to my liver. I now have three measurable hepatic lesions, along with a variety of new, more active, larger, and growing bone mets in a variety of places throughout my skeleton. The combination of Verzenio and Vasletics, my third line of treatment, has utterly failed. While any diagnosis of cancer is devastating, we know that not all cancer is created equal, and the same goes for metastatic sites. For the last four and a half years, one of the factors that has allowed me to breathe easier is that the Mets were just in my bones. Bones can and do break due to the Mets, and I've had quite a few pathological fractures, but death is not a direct result, and the life expectancy of someone with bone-only Mets is roughly twice that of people with soft tissue Mets. With one phone call, that small nugget of hope I'd been hoarding was stolen forever. Welcome to Season 4 of the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Laudico and I'm so glad you're here. Our Road to a Cure series continues this season. Here is senior co-host and producer Victoria Goldberg to get things started. Hello, friends. In the second installment of our new series, NBC 101, we go back to the basics and talk about progression and resistance. As all of you undoubtedly know, English is not my mother tongue. As a teenager, I came to the U.S. and had to learn how to adjust and communicate in a foreign-to-me language. Of course, I had no idea then that at the age of 43, I would be forced to yet again relocate to a new and scary land, the kingdom of cancer, where cancer rules and the natives speak their own brand of English. It sounds like English, but it has its own lexicon, nuance, and meaning. It gets complicated because living in cancer land is complicated. It is topsy-turvy. It is upside down and inside out. Sometimes, It feels surreal, and its language is a reflection of that. Take the word unremarkable and think of the meaning. Dull, lacking excitement, simply unremarkable. If someone were to describe me this way, I would be insulted. I don't actually know anyone who wants to be known as unremarkable. In cancer dialect, there is no nicer, more melodious-sounding word. We crave hearing it and seeing it on our skin reports. It means our disease is stable and status quo, and we are able to exhale at least until the next scan. On the other hand, take the word progression. An English language dictionary defines progression as the process of changing or developing towards an improved, improved situation or state. Sounds good, 
But in cancer land, there is no word more dreaded, more terrifying, and more triggering than this one. When cancer spreads or gets worse, it's called progression. It means that our current medication regimen is no longer working. It means that the treatment is going to change. It means new drugs, new side effects, and overall fewer remaining lines of treatment. Today, we're sitting down with one of the natives, Dr. Stephanie Graff, a breast oncologist and wordsmith, to help us find our way in this new world and unravel the mysteries of progression and resistance, tissue and liquid biopsies, tumor markers and scans. As always, I have my friends and co-hosts to assist me, and we begin with Abigail Johnston reading a passage from her wonderful blog, No Half Measures, Living Out Loud. I start every Road to a Cure interview with the same question. It is no different this time, and let's listen to how Dr. Graff answers it. I will ask you my favorite question. So, how did you get into oncology? Why did you decide to become an oncologist? So, the long answer is that one of my high school mentors, my high school history teacher, used to tell students that whatever you do in life, you have to love to read about because your job will be to read about your job, which is fantastically true advice. And in high school, I learned math and science. And so I wanted to be a physician. And once I was in medical school, the science of oncology was the stuff that I just couldn't put down. I loved the pharmacology and the biochemistry and the uh, physiology of oncology. And then when I got to the clinical rotations, just the human connection really fit. I loved the longitudinal relationships and the way that you got to know patients. Like I I knew their families and I knew their faith and I knew their values and I knew what was important to them. And I knew where they were going on vacation and what book they just finished. Like things that I didn't know about my diabetics and my primary care practice. It, It was so cool to connect with patients in the way that we do in oncology. And so it just felt like home to me. And here we are. I'm always amazed that every doctor, when I ask about why they decided to become an oncologist, mentions special relationships with patients as one of the main reasons. So next, we turn to the issue at hand and ask Dr. Graff to talk about the meaning of progression. Progression can mean a couple of different things. Progression can mean that a cancer has spread to a new spot in the body. So for somebody living with metastatic disease, perhaps currently their disease involves their bones only or their bones and their liver. And all of a sudden on a scan, we see disease in the lungs. And that would represent progression. Progression can also mean that disease that we know about. So example, if you only have a solitary brain metastasis or a solitary liver metastasis, that all of a sudden on scans, that's bigger. Now, in clinical trials, we use something called RESIST criteria, where we define bigger as 30% bigger. And the concept there is that 
a, a tumor might be shaped more like an egg than a perfect round ball. And so instead of lying perfectly straight or a little bit at an angle, or if the CT scanner cuts through the egg at a little bit of an angle or a little bit up or a little bit down, you might see that it's two millimeters or four millimeters bigger. But that doesn't mean that it's actually growing. It might just mean that we caught the egg at a different site in the egg. The egg is still an egg. And so we use resist criteria to try to avoid the impulse of let's change treatments. Because you know, living in the metastatic disease, that our bag of tricks, the number of drugs we have in our pocket is only so deep. And what we want is to use that bag of tricks for as long as we can keep disease suppressed and you feel good on that line of treatments, not cycle through with many lines of treatments as we can, like crazy people as fast as we can. And so we use this criteria to try to stop that impulse triggered by a subtle difference in a scan that could just be how the radiologist holds the measuring tape when they're measuring. That's why measurement is complicated. The definition of disease progression is evolving because now we have tests like circulating tumor DNA, circulating tumor cells, and all these other blood-based markers. And right now, that's not a part of our definition of even metastatic disease or disease recurrence or disease progression. But scientifically, we're all working to get there because wouldn't it be easier, maybe more anxiety-provoking, but easier That's something for the advocacy community to help scientists sort through. If we could use a blend test to help put all of those imaging studies in perspective. It's a lot of radiation exposure. It's a lot of cost. It's a lot of anxiety. And so if you could do a cheaper, faster, quicker blend test that didn't come with the radiation exposure and potentially diagnose a metastatic recurrence or high risk for metastatic recurrence, then maybe that would change the way that we intervene, the way that we diagnose and detect metastatic disease sooner or better. But right now, all of that is just clinical trial information, not real world. But if you're interested in participating in clinical trials, reach out to advocacy groups, look on clinicaltrials.gov, talk to your doctor because there's lots of work to be done. Let's take our first break. Dr. Graff has just alluded to the RESIST criteria. But do you know what they are? Linda Weatherby and I did some research and would like to share it with you. You hear Linda's voice first. Response evaluation criteria in solid tumors, or RESIST, is the gold standard to evaluate treatment response by using a standard measurement to evaluate the changes in the dimensions of a metastatic lesion. By using these rules, clinicians can determine when patients improve, stay the same, or stable, or worsen on a treatment. The RESIST criteria have gained widespread adoption and are widely used in oncology clinical charts. But there lies a problem. They're based on the anatomic measurement of solid tumors. Bone metastasis are typically difficult to measure with rulers in my interview with Dr. Timothy Pillard earlier this season, he opined that we need to really figure out how we can include patients with bone-only metastasis in clinical trials. Because technically, by resist criteria, if they're limited to the bone and truly limited to the bone, 
They don't have measurable disease in the resist terminology. And so they're excluded. Now back to the interview. What is mechanism of resistance? What is the difference between progression and resistance? Resistance is what leads to progression most of the time, arguably all of the time. Resistance means that your tumor has outsmarted the drugs that you're on, pure and simple, and has decided to start growing through it. When I think about resistance, I'm going to use layperson analogy. I go out into my sidewalk and pour every possible thing I can think of. There's weeds that come out of the cracks between the sidewalks and I'll be damned if six weeks later they're not popping back up. And it's not because I haven't tried literally gasoline, which is what my mother used to use, or Roundup, which is terrible and a carcinogen and I probably shouldn't be using. Like everything, pull them, they grow back, those weeds just keep coming back up. That's resistance. And that's what happens with cancer. Your tumor is exposed to tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitor, trastuzumab, CDK4-6 inhibitor, et cetera, et cetera, and et cetera. And it works wonderfully, hopefully for years. And then someday it doesn't. And we see on a scan or a blood test or your symptoms that things are changing. And there's different ways that a tumor develops resistance. Sometimes it mutates the receptor. Sometimes it upregulates the receptor. Sometimes it downregulates the receptor. And it depends on what type of cancer you have and what drug it is. And sometimes we don't even know what the mechanism of resistance is. So before I turn it over to my friends for the follow-up questions, please explain downregulators and upregulators. I'm going to use HER2 as an example. And depending on how badly I stumble through, we can always follow it up with the astrocyte But remember, at the very beginning of your breast cancer uh, diagnosis, you were probably told that your HER2 was HER2 zero, HER2 one plus, HER2 two plus, or HER2 three plus. That means that when we look at your cancer under the microscope and literally dump ink, because we're that sophisticated, we dump the ink on cells, that's how much ink sticks to your cancer under the microscope. And what the ink is sticking to is the HER2 receptor. And the more ink that sticks, the more receptors are on the surface of the cell. And so somebody who has HER2 1 plus has more receptors than somebody who has HER2 zero. And somebody who has HER2 2 plus has more than somebody who's one. And obviously somebody who's three plus has more than somebody who's two plus. Our definition of positive is three plus. For somebody who's two plus, then we typically do fish or ish or sish, or there's a million other versions of that. So look to see if they're amplified because you can have a medium number of receptors and still have that gene turned on in the cell. But we know that a lot of breast cancer will have HER2 on the surface. That's why now we're seeing trastuzumab direct scan being tested in this new concept of HER2 low breast cancer and why even in patients that are HER2 zero, we're seeing about 30% of patients respond to trastuzumab direct scan. And that's because people who are HER2 zero, it's not that they don't have any HER2, it's that there's not much ink sticking to that cancer cell. So when cancers develop resistance, interestingly, one of the mechanisms of estrogen resistance is to upregulate HER2 because there's some crosstalk in the cell. And so by making more HER2 on the surface, it can help bypass that estrogen blockade 
even if HER2 isn't your cancer's thing. So even if you're HER2 negative, your breast cancer can use HER2 to get around estrogen, which is like, what is even happening? And so that upregulation just means that your cancer cell decides to sprout more of that particular pattern on the surface of the cancer cell. And that's upregulation. Downregulation is the opposite of that process. Downregulation is the mechanism that estrogen typically uses. And we see that a lot in tumors. They downregulate the progesterone receptor. So we see somebody who has ER 95%, PR 95% on future biopsies become ER 80%, PR 40%. Their cancer starts to turn down how much estrogen and progesterone is being expressed, and that's a way it's developing resistance. It occurs to me that there has been a lot of talk about receptors, but we never really defined what they are. To do this, I turn one more time to my friend Abigail Johnston's blog and her beautifully written explanation. A blog entry entitled simply, Receptors. When I was initially diagnosed and joined some online support groups, I discovered a whole new shorthand utilized by patients and medical professionals to describe the different subtypes of breast cancer. At first, these letters and symbols were quite intimidating, and it took me some time to get comfortable and familiar with utilizing and interpreting the information. Now, I understand far more about them, and truly a few pieces of information can go a long way towards understanding the experiences and treatment to each person. Receptors are usually part of this shorthand. Generally, receptors are molecules that live on the surface of a cancer cell that can be filled and attracted by a specific ligand. This ligand can also colloquially be called fuel, since when the receptor is a field, that allows the cancer cell to continue to proliferate and take over more healthy cells. For breast cancer, there are three different receptors that are typically used to describe a subtype and which are often targeted for treatment. They are estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 new. For the first two receptors, both hormones made naturally by the body. A pathology report will include a percentage of positivity. For the last receptor, the pathology report typically just includes positive or negative. When I was first diagnosed, the pathology report indicated that the tumor in my breast was strongly estrogen positive 98%, moderately progesterone positive 67%, and HER2 negative. Since the pathologist had to run more than one test to determine the HER2 receptor status, I now understand that the correct terminology is HER2 low for that initial tumor. Researchers understand much more about HER2 low now than in 2017. I think we're truly done with basic concepts. Now we move into a section on how to confirm progression and talk about tumor marks tissue and liquid biopsies and scans. And I'm ready to turn this microphone over to Linda Weatherby and Kate Fitzer. Here is Linda with her first question. 
So Dr. Graf, I wanted to dive in to just the concept of progression and how do you as a provider know when progression is happening? Sometimes tumor markers can be moving up and as you referenced earlier, we don't want to change therapies too quickly. So how long does it take you to be convinced that it indeed is progression? And are there ways on the horizon coming to monitor progression so that we can confirm it sooner and maybe not have to wait and be sure? Yeah. So I'm actually going to start with tumor markers. I am anti-tumor markers. I don't check them. And that's a controversy. And I'll acknowledge that first for anybody having tumor markers checked by their oncologist. Your oncologist isn't evil. You don't need to ask them why they're doing what they're doing. And you don't have to. The, the guidelines actually recommend against checking tumor markers, even for people with metastatic disease. And it's because imaging trumps tumor markers. And so it's not a get out of jail free card to get you out of imaging. I think that for a lot of patients, when they hear the phrase tumor marker, they think that they're getting a direct measurement of the amount of cancer in their body. And that is wholly untrue. Tumor markers are markers of inflammation. And so for some patients, it does correlate with disease activity. But for a lot of patients, especially patients with hormone receptor positive breast cancers, it doesn't correlate very well. It's not a cancer that produces much inflammation in the body, even in the metastatic space. And sometimes other things, you sprain your ankle, you get a virus, your tumor markers will skyrocket and you'll freak out. Who means that in their life? And so the truth is, would tumor markers ever stop me from doing systemic imaging? No. Would tumor markers ever add clarity to something? Normally not. Sometimes for patients with bone-only disease and very complicated bone scans, they could, but now we have things like FES PET or PET scans in general. I don't know that they add much to my clinical practice, so I don't do them. But for patients who have been living with metastatic disease or six years, eight years, 10 years, sometimes the patient and I have mutually agreed that they've been doing well for so long that we're going to do scans once a year, once every six months. They know their body and they're doing so well that they're comfortable scaling back the frequency of their image. Some don't. Some still want scans every 12 weeks and that's fine. But some want to start scaling back. And in that situation, sometimes that's when we do talk about whether or not we want to add tumor markers. Tumor markers are a complex issue. It's time for another break. Martha Carlson is going to give us a little overview on tumor markers. Here is Martha. Dr. Grass just talked about her use of tumor markers. But I want to take a minute to explain that a tumor marker is a biomarker found in blood, urine, and body tissue. It could be produced by the tumor itself or by the body's response to the tumor. In breast cancer, there are tumor markers in the blood that your doctor may measure serially. Serial measurements show how the level of a marker changes over time. In some people, a decrease in the level of a specific marker may mean the tumor is responding to treatment, while an increase could mean the opposite. The usefulness of the information these tumor markers provide depends on various factors, including the subtype of breast cancer, 
they may have less usefulness in HER2 positive and TMBC and the individual patient. The most frequent serial measured tumor markers in the blood for breast cancer are carcinoembryonic antigen or CEA, which is a marker that's often used for colorectal cancer, but it can be useful in monitoring treatment response in breast cancer too. CA-15-3 and CA-27-29, CA stands for cancer antigen, are related tumor markers that are made by breast cancer cells. So finding them in the blood can signal breast cancer or lack of treatment effectiveness. CA-125 is associated with both ovarian cancer and breast cancer. Blood tumor markers like these can be elevated for reasons unrelated to breast cancer, such as another type of cancer or a benign condition. They are one of the tools our doctors can use to see what is happening, but on their own, they aren't sufficient to monitor for progression or treatment effectiveness. We will talk about DNA and liquid biopsy a little later. How do I know that the disease is progressing? Hopefully, I know that the disease is progressing because I catch it on a scan before anything changes. Often what will happen is that I will do a scan and somebody's tumor will be two millimeters bigger. And I will say that doesn't actually meet resist criteria for bigger. But I got my attention and I'm worried because scan after scan after scan for the last two years, it's been smaller or better or exactly the same. And here we are. And we know that the average time to response for the therapy that you're currently on is X number of days, months, weeks, years. And that's currently about where you're at. So maybe this is a warning sign. And so sometimes then I'll say to the patient, instead of scanning you in 12 weeks, should we scan in eight weeks? Should we use this as a time to consider going ahead and doing a blood-based assay like gardens or foundation to look for new molecular signatures that may open you up for new targeted therapies or clinical trials so that we don't have to wait on that piece. Dr. Graff, is a biopsy always recommended before you would consider a change in treatment? And if you could just touch quickly on tissue versus liquid. And do you do both or do you do one or the other? I do both and I do them differently. Everybody should have a tissue diagnosis of metastatic disease. I have diagnosed far too many people with multiple myeloma or melanoma instead of metastatic breast cancer to not believe that you should be doing a tissue diagnosis of your metastatic cancer. I tend to re-biopsy after progression on a CDK46 inhibitor but largely because I have a ton of clinical trials and targeted therapies in that space. If they are bone-only disease, I will do a liquid biopsy. If they have something that's easy to get to in their liver, I will do a percutaneous liver biopsy. I hate biopsying people's lungs because it covers with the risk of dropping their lung and giving them a new microx, which is mean. More because of the aftermath <laughs> than anything else. For patients with triple negative breast cancer, I feel like I biopsy a lot because I'm always looking for changes in the genomic landscape and liquid biopsies have made it easier to bottle back and forth between tissue and liquid, depending on what is going on where. When you have a real progression 
And because with two millimeters, you're probably not even going to be eligible for a child. You'll have to have a real progression in order to be eligible. So we start doing sort of the legwork so that when there's a resist criteria progression, we have more information and can make the best decisions. Is this a time that as a patient, you want to say, I feel great on my current line of therapy because it's oral, because it's a monthly, because it's every three weeks and I know what my side effects are, that you want to plan that big vacation or whatever because the other shoe might drop. And I don't know what the next line of therapy is going to feel like. So sometimes that happens and we have to just have a conversation about what we want to do with them. I hate those conversations because I know that what I'm introducing is a lot of worry. And I always tell patients that what I deeply, deeply hope of the outcome of that conversation is that in eight weeks or 12 weeks and they come back for their next scan is that I was wrong and that we just sliced the egg in the wrong direction and that it wasn't two millimeters bigger. It was just cut in a slightly different angle. And then they get to slap me or kick me as hard as they can in the shin for making them feel bad and worry for the last eight weeks or 12 weeks. And then we move on. But again, to change a therapy that's working for something that's not real is not a good choice either. So sometimes we just have to live with awkward. Think that that living with awkward, I feel like that should be like a metastatic breast cancer t-shirt and we all walk around with like, hey, I'm living with awkward. Sometimes though, I do scans and it's clearly progression. Sometimes somebody comes in for treatment or comes into the emergency department or comes in for a sick visit. And says to me, Dr. Graf, my cancer is worse. Or says to me, Dr. Graf, I have pain here. I have a headache now. I have whatever this symptom is that's different. And either they know and tell me, or I know and I can tell them, I'm worried that this means that you're just progression, even if it's in a gap between skincare's. In breast cancer, that's a little bit less common than in other cancer types. I feel like my colleagues that treat lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, have those surprise progressions, those interval progressions more frequently than I deal with as a breast oncologist. But those happen too. And I think that that's an important thing for anybody who is living with a metastatic disease diagnosis to know is you are the expert in your body. And so if you have lived with your body every day for the last 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and you wake up and today is different. You pick up the phone and you call your medical oncologist and say, today is different. And it's not the eyebrows, chest, choose a mouth, sassa, choose a mouth, whatever. It's different. And I think you need to come in and see because it might mean that you're to be for the rest. In terms of catching it sooner, there's a bunch of trials trying to figure out how to use circulating tumor DNA, circulating tumor cells, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of iterations of circulating blood markers that look at either tumor cells or tumor DNA. I think circulating tumor DNA will probably ultimately be the winner. It's so hard to know how to use tests like that because when we're talking about literally a microscopic progression, a progression that we cannot see. We have clear evidence that it's a battle. Every trial that's been done says that when we find circulating tumor DNA, that it's a warning sign that stuff's coming for the vast majority of patients that we find. But we don't have any evidence that starting treatment when we find that 
as opposed to when we find something we can see. Changes the big picture. So I'm going to use a lot of analogies just because it's something easier to talk about that. If the writing is on the wall that your last day to live is December 31st, and I diagnosed your cancer with circulating tumor DNA in January versus on a CT scan in April, starting you on treatment in January as opposed to in April creates lead time bias. It makes it look like you live longer because it looks like you lived with metastatic disease for a year instead of nine months. But all it does is increase your cost and toxicity because you got systemic therapy for three months longer and the date written in the stars is still the date written in the stars. So what we need to prove is that we change the date written in the stars by treating you when that circulating tumor is there. And right now we don't have that proof. And historically data showing things like People who change treatment without a change in their resist criteria don't have a different outcome. Makes us think that maybe that will end up being true. If you change treatment without a change in the resist criteria, that may be that we're giving a bunch of people a change in the treatment who just have their end cut wrong, and that circulating tumor DNA is going to be a more accurate way to catch true progression than imaging. As we went through the pandemic, I think that that was such a beautiful way to see the evolution of science. Like we thought a lot of wrong things in the early pandemic. And then science said, oh, we were wrong about that. Oh, we were wrong about that. Oh, here's the newest advice and recommendation. Because that's how science works. Like we're stupid until we study it and get the right answer. And then we study it even harder. Sometimes our opinions change. And that's how the science even of metastatic cancer works. And my best advice at this point is to look for those trials if this is something that you feel passionate about or interested in. Patient viewpoint that I would offer here as far as does it change the date written in the stars? Yeah. <laughs> it is that if you intervene earlier, sometimes you can save patients tremendous quality of life compromises. So that's the only counter, I guess, I would think to ask you about. And it can go both ways, right? Because if intervening early means that you don't end up with a brain metastasis or a eight centimeter liver metastasis, we're going to save you something. But if intervening earlier means that you get grade four peripheral neuropathy and can't go on to get your second line or your third line or your fourth line of therapy because you can't pull a pencil. We hurt you instead of helped you. So many double-edged swords in what we do. There's the cost, and not just the cost of the treatment, the cost of how many people in the medicine community do you know that have had to stop working or faced other productivity or workplace challenges because of just the demands of living with metastatic disease. Let's take another break from the interview and spend a few minutes on liquid biopsies. Liquid biopsy is the use of a patient fluid sample rather than a tissue sample for the same kind of clinical utility one would give from a traditional biopsy. It has been shown that during tumor progression, the tumor can shed a few biomarkers into the bloodstream, including cells, proteins, and nucleic acids. 
These are linearly related to the size of the tumor and can provide a snapshot in time of the tumor status. Some of the most commonly used biomarkers for liquid biopsy are circulating tumor cells or CTCs that shed off of the tumor and can be captured in a simple blood draw. It has been shown that the concentration of CTCs correlates with disease severity and that the surface receptors and molecular contents of the CTC are reflective of the tumor. One of the major challenges with CTC capture and detection is that they are extremely rare, with typically fewer than 10 cells in a standard blood draw. Once captured, CTCs can provide a wealth of information about the tumor, including an understanding of surface antigens and genetic profile. Another biomarker of interest is circulating tumor DNA, or CTDNA. CTDNA is DNA that shed out of the tumor through secretion, apoptosis, and necrosis. It is widely believed that CTDNA can be detected sooner than other circulating biomarkers due to its larger fragment number in the blood. CTDNA poses a challenge for capture and detection because it's relatively small and low in concentration. One of the biggest challenges with CTDNA capture and analysis is differentiating tumor DNA from a healthy cell DNA. The liquid biopsy represents, in a more exhaustive way than the tissue biopsy, the molecular heterogeneity of cancer and tumor DNA deriving from the different areas of the same tumor and possible disease locations. Moreover, the liquid biopsy can be repeated over time to monitor the molecular evolution of the disease. Although there is no evidence to date to change the therapeutic choice in the absence of clinical progression. So let's go back to the interview and a great question posed by Kay. So you touched a little bit about scans. So I, I wanted to dive in further into that because there's so much talk within the community about scans all the time. Some patients report that they have PET scans and other patients only have CAT scans. And then the frequency of the scans just varies so widely between patients. It seems like there's no standard to go by. That's what it seems from a patient point of view. So we would love to hear your thoughts on what scans should be used and what the frequency. Yeah. And that's what a great question. The cliff notes answer is there's no right or wrong answer. The infinitely longer answer is that either CT and bone scanner or PET scan are probably equally good. There's some caveats and nuance there. So PET scan is radio-labeled glucose with the idea that cancer is greedy and so it will take up all the sugar. And so your greedy cancer will light up like a Christmas tree on your PET scan. The problem is that the brain exclusively eats sugar and the liver exclusively eats sugar. So sometimes on a PET scan, seeing disease in the liver and seeing disease in the brain is very hard to determine from the background noise in the brain and the liver. Modern PET scanners have largely overcome that. But especially for people with diabetes or other glucose metabolism problems, that can be really hard to sort through. Furthermore, sometimes they don't light up very much. 
much. And so then it really gets complicated. So I think that the default in part due to cost and in part due to concerns about activity in the liver and brain, the need to fast with a PET scan, least still with a PET scan, estrogen metabolism, that CT and bone scanners still used a lot in the breast cancer community. I actually think there's a right to follow, which is a training bias thing. I think we're all shaped a lot by where we trained and what our mentors taught us to do. Breast cancer metastasis can be hard to see in the bones because they can do anything. A lot of cancer types only create plastic or lytic or sclerotic or lesions and breast cancer can create all three. And so a bone scan is always additive to a CT scan to prevent missing stuff in the bones. But largely they're interchangeable. In terms of frequency, the MCCM guidelines, National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, say that systemic imaging should be every three to six months for patients living with metastatic disease. Again, I would recommend every three months until there had been proven disease stability for a long period of time. And I mean, long years, at which point we start talking about scaling back, depending on the patient's comfort. I want somebody to have significantly outperformed the average for the treatment that they're on. So if the average time that somebody's on a CDK or six inhibitor is years, I want them on it for years before we start talking about doing this. Um, a lot of clinical trials in 2022 and beyond do scans every eight weeks. And the reason for that is really about the business of drug development. What drug company X needs to do is get their drug approved so that they can recoup expenses. So sometimes they do very frequent scans so that they can show that the drug works, especially when we're talking about second or third or fourth line or phase one, where you're sometimes getting fifth, sixth, seventh line patients. So you have to get an early scan to show some tumor response. And the only way to do that is to go for now, that sounds pretty jaded, but I think of the advocacy community, the likelihood that you're talking to people participating in trials is much higher than when you're speaking to people outside of the advocacy community, where their doctors are just following the guidelines and doing scans every three months. A further complication is that once somebody's been on a trial and they've been having scans every eight weeks on a trial and they come off a trial and you're like, oh yeah, we're going to do scans every six months. They're like, what? Oh, what has just happened here? And so then you have to have a conversation about what's changing with their scans and why you're doing it this way or that way. And it's all messy and complicated. I would not typically do scans more than every 12 weeks, every three months off of the trial. We said that we'd stop after maybe many years. Can you quantify that a little bit? Because in the CDK46, yeah. a lot of us are on for a very long time. But then we think, okay, so the longer that we're on this, does that mean we're closer to progression? So then how do we balance that? So is it okay to go to four months, but then you're like, oh my gosh, I've been on it so long. When is it going to stop working? Shouldn't I be scanned again every three months? Yeah, that's the rub, right? That's the decision that somebody has to make for their comfort. But the other thing is that if your disease has been stable for seven years in four months or six months, 
your disease isn't going to quadruple, especially if you've been any no evidence. You're not going to go from no evidence of disease to a life-threatening liver full of cancer. That's not how this works. So it's about putting that in perspective. And I didn't use dates because I don't know who's listening to our podcast right now. I encounter people in my clinical practice who don't want to know. They don't want to know what the median time to respond on a CD or six inhibitors. And they don't want to know what their average life expectancy is. Speaking totally generically. If you're on a drug that the average response is a year, I want you to be on events for two years before we start talking about backing down. If you're on a drug that the average response is two and a half years, I want you to be on maybe three and a half, maybe four years before we start talking about doing less. Because we know that if the median response is a year and you're in a year and a half, yeah, you're doing great, but you're not doing like you've blown my mind that you're doing so amazing with it. You're just contributing to the average. So it's, it's about thinking about how bell curves are actually made. Like we want is those super responders to be able to relax. And, and it's not like you're saying go a year in between scans. It sounds like let's go four months instead of three months. I have that conversation with patients. I'm like, we're to a place in your treatment response where I'm comfortable doing this. If you wanted to be scanned every six months, if you wanted to be scanned every whatever, let's talk about what that looks like. I have one patient who is an immigrant from another country, and she was on oral therapy and so was able to do her oral therapy internationally. And she got to the place where she wanted to be scanned. I would say her frequency of scans was maybe every eight months because she'd go home to her native country and... Be like, yeah, I'm going to be back in the States for a while. Let's do a scan while I'm there. It was totally sporadic just based on her coming and going. And I think that's such a beautiful way to live with metastatic breast cancer. She was just living and that's perfect. That's what I wanted. And she did great like that. Let's take one final break. In the last segment, there were a couple of things that Dr. Graf referred to but did not explain. We thought they needed some clarification. So let's listen to Kate as she explains the MCCN guidelines and the types of bone metastasis. We just heard Dr. Graf speak about bone metastasis. So let's take a look at that. Bone metastasis are classified as blastic, lytic, sclerotic, and they can even be mixed. Blastic lesions fill the bone with extra cells, whereas lytic lesions destroy those cells. When we see sclerotic lesion on our scans, it's typically talking about hardening of the bone in response to treatment, representing healing. You might be wondering what NCCN guidelines are. NCCN stands for National Comprehensive Cancer Network. It's a set of guidelines that are updated periodically and accepted widely. They're used to guide providers to consider best practice treatment options. When planning a treatment regimen, practitioners will keep the guidelines into consideration, but will also review the most recent advances, as well as patient circumstances to come up with an individualized plan. We return to the interview, and here's Kate again with the next question. So now we want to turn to scanning for brain nets because 
Right now, the standard of care only screens patients for brain myths if they present with symptoms. But we've all seen that treating small lesions, you get better outcomes and even less side effects if you treat them sooner rather than later. So the question really is, why hasn't the standards changed to keep up with the advances in the treatment that we have now? And what do you recommend for patients? Interestingly, I just had a conversation about this with a group of experts, and we all had that same exact question. (laughs) And and that's a debate even amongst ourselves right now. How should we be adapting to changes, whether the changes are the improved access and accuracy and availability of technologies like uh, stereotactic radio surgery or things like the cognitive. And I'm going to say, yes, outcomes are better for smaller, but keep in mind again that smaller is a bell curve. Outcomes are better for things that are smaller than two centimeters, a centimeter. Things that are very small, we say that's so small, we're not even sure it needs to be treated right now, let's watch it. I think sometimes that can create anxiety, worry, excessive scanning without changing how we treat at all. It could eliminate clinical trial options for somebody that that's their only potential site of disease. And when it's that, we don't even know if it's really a brain map. It could be anything. We assist. So sometimes we obsessively scan people and then we find these ditzels where we don't even know what they are. We think the lot of her two targeted therapy penetrates the brain. And it just didn't get studied in the same way that the HER2 client study included active brain metastasis. If we know that you have HER2 positive disease, that you're high risk for brain metastasis, and we're doing an MRI of your brain once a year or at another type of disease progression, or when we're screening you for a clinical trial, we're probably going to find those things that are small and reasonable to treat. Does that mean that you should have a brain MRI every three months, especially if you don't already have a known history of brain metastasis? I don't know yet that we're there. Again, that might end up creating more trouble than we have to answer for. It's a question that we need to study. All of us are doing far more MRIs in a post-herzucline-sacotinib world than we did before. Because it does factor into our thinking about which HER2 agent we choose and how we approach clinical trial eligibility. And honestly, it's changed the way as a clinical investigator, as a researcher, we design clinical trials. Thank you to the FDA. Thank you to Ask Our Friends of Cancer Research, AACR, advocacy communities. One more quick question. We know that subtypes can change and we're all totally confused about how one jumps from one to the next to the next. I knew one patient who was living with MBC and she literally had gone through every subtype and back again. So is there a kind of a rule of thumb for when estrogen receptor uh, positivity is lost and maybe another change comes about, which way it's likely to go? Is it usually ER positive to triple negative? Does it ever go back and forth with HER2 positivity? So largely that doesn't happen. Largely people, even people who lose ER positivity don't lose it all the way. They go from being ER 80% to ER 10 or 20%. And there's still estrogen receptor positive. It's like that 2 progress on a CD or 6 inhibitor. 
maybe full vesturin and the next thing, whether that's a PO3 kinase inhibitor or Everolinus, you're going to move on to chemo because you're largely endocrine resistant, regardless of whether your ER is 99% or not. You've gone through our very best estrogen blockade and it's time to move on to a more traditional chemotherapy day. It's pretty rare for somebody to go from being fully ER positive to ER zero, Schmitterin subsequent bias. It's very unusual for somebody who's triple negative to suddenly express estrogen or HER2. And similarly, it's unusual for HER2 positive breast cancer to become HER2 negative. That said, I tell patients all the time that breast cancer is not a ball of play It's not one thing that homogenous all throughout. It is an oatmeal cookie. And sometimes people have pecans or chocolate chips and butterscotch and cookie. And sometimes their metastasis aren't just the chocolate chips. And we all have those patients in our practice. I have at least three that come to mind that have done everything. And those are the people who drive me insane. And I'm like, why I see them every flipping time they cook grass because I don't know which part of their cookie is manifesting. And I tell them that they're weird and that they shouldn't talk to other people because they'll confuse people. When, talk. when we talk about people's markers changing, there's shades of gray in that change. You'll hear us talk about somebody who's ER 10%, PR 0%. The guidelines still say that those people are estrogen receptor positive, and you can find as many trials saying that their outcome is worse if we don't give them estrogen blocking as you can find saying that they don't do as well with estrogen blocking. But we need to hold space for the fact that both are true. Those patients need estrogen blocking because if they don't get it, they're going to do worse. But their outcome isn't as good as somebody who has an ER of 90%. Those facts can be true and exist together because those facts aren't saying the same thing. Okay. So somebody who has ER 10% on a subsequent biopsy is very likely to go to ER 5%. Does it mean that they've got a robustly hormone sensitive breast cancer? No, but they never did. I'm going to give that person chemo next. Does that mean that they turn to triple negative? No, because the definition of triple negative is ER0, PR0. I'm sorry, the definitions are dumb, but that's what the definitions are. We started with uh, definitions and we ending with definitions. So I think we've come all the way around. We all hate to let you go. We would love to keep you here for another couple of hours or more. <laughs> but we understand that you have other responsibilities. So we'll have to make you promise us to come back and talk okay. to us again. Yes. Thank you all for having Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham. Mm-hmm. Resistance, progression, tumor marker, scan. These are difficult words to hear without the underlying and ever-present sense of fear and anxiety. Let's end this episode with a new word, FESVET, that is bound to make you more hopeful about the future. Here's Linda to tell you why. Traditional PET scans rely on a glucose-based imaging agent that is taken up by present cancer cells to diagnose metastatic sites and disease activity. Siriana, which is also called F18-fluoroestradiol, or FES for short, 
is a new type of PET scan that uses a contrast agent that binds to the estrogen receptor on cancers. So only the cells that are positive for estrogen receptor will light up on the FES scan. Your doctor can see if you are all ER positive, partially ER positive, or not at all, which will guide treatment decisions. If the FES scan shows that all metastatic sites seen on the PET scan are also lighting up as ER positive, you might not need to do a tissue biopsy because you'd be a candidate for estrogen blockade therapies. If, however, the metastatic sites seen on PET scan do not then show up as ER positive on the FES scan, a tissue biopsy to determine the molecular makeup or subtype of non-estrogen positive sites is typically the next step to inform the best treatment for your disease. This podcast was produced by Victoria Goldberg. The brilliant Road to a Cure episode team members are Martha Carlson, Dr. Paula Jane, Dr. Ellen Landsberger, Kate Fitzer, and Linda Weatherby. Expert sound design by Bill Smith. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us, and look for a new episode every week. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rmbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.